Do you feel like friendship making has changed as you've become a middle adult? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a lot harder. It's a whole lot harder. Yeah, th- this is what um, I've yeah. heard. Especially as someone who's a sort of regular old, you know, male, right? In, in terms of how I present and how I sort of think about the world in many respects. It is really difficult to make, to make meaningful friendships with other men around my age. Hmm. Because a lot of what we believe has been solidified. You don't hear that every day. Our neighbors at the taco place are doing some renovations right now. Hi, and welcome to Can't Unread, the podcast about the texts and ideas that change us. I'm Rosie Pasqualini, and today I'm joined by political science and health and society professor Ron Watson. Hey, hey. To talk about an article called Three Decades Ago, America Lost Its Religion. Why? Written by uh, Derek Thompson for The Atlantic um, in, I think, May of 2019. September, maybe. But yeah. September. You're correct. Yes, here we go. This is, this is how it's going to be. Like, this is the experience. <laughs> That's totally fine. <laughs> Okay, Ron. So uh, a starter question. How are you? I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's a little bit cold. So I got to make sure I put more lotion on my hands because they're a little bit itchy. But. I feel that I also just got um, a lamp for Ooh. seasonal depression. Yes, it's important. It's very important. Yeah, it looks like a giant portal. And, you know, I've been staring at it in the mornings wondering if I'll feel happy yet. The topic of religion to me is is very interesting. I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about your own interest in this article and its topics. I uh, I studied uh, religion as an undergraduate. In fact, my undergraduate degree is in religious studies. Um, And I come from a part of the country where uh, religion and religious belief and uh, everything that it entails is, is still a very important aspect of most people's lives. And so, yeah. Uh, that's that's interesting to me in and of itself. And then, of course, the the topic itself is one that I think actually is very important. Uh, there has been a clear uh, increase in the number of young people, um, but people in general in the United States, who have declared themselves non-religious. Mm-hmm. Um, and as the article, of course, touches on, this is this is important, or at least noteworthy. Because the U.S. among the developed nations is one of the most religious of countries, right? I mean, people here pray a lot, um, and they they tend to hold on to religious belief uh, and consider themselves part of traditions in ways that other sort of peer countries, uh, lots of people there don't any longer. Right. Is it interesting reconciling the fact that you grew up in such a religious area with the fact that, you know, at least as this author claims, some religion is on the decline in the U.S.? Because, you know, like when I read this, um, to me, it's kind of like I feel that I'm part of the majority, partially because of the statistics he cites, but partially because I live in, you know, a a secular bubble. And I was like, well, of course, being non-religious is the norm. Um, Being religious is the thing that would be different about you. Right. Um, but I assume your experience is a little different from that. My family went through a, a very uh, intensive sort of religious conversion, uh, specifically through my mother. Prior to that, we weren't terribly religious. Huh. We'd go to church, um, Christian church, of course, every now and again. Uh, but then there was a shift. More importantly, um, I think about my extended family. And, you know, Many of them are today ministers, right, ordained ministers. Hmm. Uh, when I say many, I mean like four. Right. So that is many. 
church attendance and everything that's tied to that and the sort of community that's tied to that is very important to them. And of course, it's very important to many people in the area. Yeah. Certainly outside of most of the more secular bubbles I've lived in, right? It's, it's, it's a completely different world in that right. respect, yeah. Let's talk about some of the factors that Thompson discusses as having led to the secularization of the U.S. Sure. Yeah, you'll have to, to help me out here because, honestly, my historical and political knowledge is developing. It's a, it's a <laughs> new enough. enterprise. Sure. I got woke at the same time as everyone else, which is way too late. So basically, Thompson uh, talks about these three factors mm-hmm. that he thinks led to the secularization of the U.S., um, in the 90s. Uh, He's borrowing from Smith, who he mentions in the article. You can check it out. Uh, The factors are these. The first one is the association of the Republican Party with the Christian right. Mm -hmm. Next one is the Cold War. And the last one is Mm 9-11. What do you make of these factors? Do you think that they're accurate? I mean, I think so, for the most part. Um, I think each one of them had something that that would have been problematic to someone who's sort of a deep thinker or, or even a deeper than, than normal than average thinker around <laughs> religion. You know, if you think about, uh, for example, the Cold War, mm-hmm. uh, the Cold War was still going on when I was a kid. And there very much was this sense of, you know, America is a God-fearing nation, right? And that, that sets us apart from the evil atheist of the Soviet Union. Yeah, that's so interesting. Like, yeah. cause I, can't, I don't want to say I can't imagine that, but I, I haven't lived that. That, that blows my mind. Yeah, no, it's yeah. something else, right? I mean, if mm-hmm. you, you, know, you even think this is an era, of course, this is prior to my birth, but in the 1950s, this is, you know, this is when we get the one nation under God at it. It was not there previously. I think that um, young people, trademark symbol, and, and others, I mean, tend to forget how recent some of history is. Yeah. Even though we know it's recent, we tend to draw this line like, that was the past, this is now. Right, right. Um, I mean, very, another similar piece, right? In God we trust instead right. of e pluribus unum, right? E pluribus unum had been our, meaning the country's uh, uh, motto. All of a sudden, you know, you're fighting against, against people who, you know, you fixate on. And again, it makes sense from a propaganda standpoint. Mm-hmm. You want to fixate on something that you know resonates with most of your people rather than fixate on, you know, they offer free education. My God, they have a universal health care system. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, well, let's focus on the fact that there's no state religion and they don't support religion. Yeah. The phrase that he uses is the godless evil empire. Right, right. I mean, yeah. it's, and I think very much so there are any number of people who believe that, right? And certainly it was what was fed to us mm-hmm. um, uh, during that time. So, yeah, I think there's some validity to that argument. Um, Similarly, the association of the Christian right with the Mm -hmm. Republican Party. Again, if you had considered yourself part of a church, but you were sort of moderate and 1980 rolls around and the Republican Party does something sort of unprecedented, it, you know, sort of draws in the religious right. Right. um, Which that party had honestly avoided for decades prior. If you go back and you read some of the things that some Republican strategists had to say, you know, it was like, avoid them at all costs. Mark my word, if and when these preachers get control of the party, and they're sure trying to do so, it's going to be a terrible damn problem. Barry Goldwater. But then Ronald Reagan's presidency comes around, or his candidacy comes around, and there's this open embrace of the Christian right. And I think if you're yourself sort of politically moderate person, who happened to be part of a, of a congregation that saw this as this is what we want. And especially if you were of that vein of people who really believe that politics and religion shouldn't mix, 
I can totally see you, you know, becoming disenchanted to, at the very least, and maybe even sort of rabidly anti-religion uh, at the very worst around that one. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. It's easy to say that it uh, backfired because the Republican Party is now the God Party and people are becoming less religious, but the Republican Party is very strong. Yeah, so, very you know, strong. I, yeah, I find that interesting. It is um, strong. I was going to say we could, like, get down, but, like, it's there wasn't a beat. It was just a continuous If, if there sound. was a rhythm, we maybe could have done something with that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it just sounds like a fart. Let me say the last thing, 9-11. Um, right, I was wondering, if you, I, I feel like that's maybe one of the more controversial ones. Uh, yeah, go on, go Yeah, on. I mean, I agree. I, I think it is, it is one of the more controversial ones because it, the argument that's being made is that, that the sort of religious fundamentalism that we see that en enables something like the 9-11 attacks, right? Uh-huh. That there are people who then looked and said, well, see, all religion is bad. This is why. I don't know. I mean, I think that's a bit of a stretch. Yeah, and I think you know? it delegitimizes uh, some of the arguments against religion. Yeah, a little bit, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I would almost argue that it, that it certainly caused some people to experience maybe even religious retrenchment. Where they, oh my God, you know, whether we want to be part of this again. This is, a, you know, us right. Christians against them Muslims, right? What's the word you use? Did you say retrenchment? Yeah, sure. Instead of abandoning religion they decided to sort of you know, mm. dig deeper into it right and so um, it's not very often that I hear a word that I just completely don't know thank you <laughs> it's just it's just sort of a back uh, instead of progress to sort of you know right dig in backwards right yeah, I think this for the most part is accurate but it also ignores the sort of modern modernization argument after all uh, one of the things that we can think about when we look at other countries is that there haven't been all of these anti-religion right. policies per se. Yeah, let's get into that because I wanted to talk about um, the paths to secularization taken by other countries. Uh -huh. So I was wondering if you if you have thoughts on how those compare to what happened in the U.S. because that's an important part of his argument, but he doesn't really go into it that much. The reality is that you know several other of our peer countries, especially in Europe, Many of them have had long-time relationships with whatever their established church or religion was, right? I mean, you think especially with the Catholic Church. And it was less of a, there was some sort of massive atheist revolution where people were just like, you know, down with God or something <laughs> like that, right? And it was more of the, either the contradictions of the institution itself or the problems of the institution itself. And I think Thompson mentions that a little bit, right, with huh. the... Uh, you know, the Catholic Church in particular has been rocked for decades by accusations and then actual clear evidence of wrongdoing with respect to children, right? Right. You know, religion, we have to remember, I mean, these are, these are doctrines that are based in sometimes thousands of years old belief systems. I mean, the world is not the same anymore. And as the evidence of the inoculations role improves and increases... Uh, you know, some naturally would say, well, you know, I guess it's, you know, if this is, if this was wrong, this foundational thing was wrong, then what else is wrong? Right. And that leads to a sort of internal cascade, right? Sometimes I wonder if historically the further we get from a religious event that's been dated and, you know, this is when this guy wrote down these things from God, even though, you know, many, many years ago, they're still considered old. If the ever increasing distance also contributes to people's skepticism or to, to letting go of it. Yeah. I mean, you, you want to say maybe. I feel like you could also make it more powerful, though. Right. Like that's exactly and that's, ex old and, yeah. that's exactly right. Because, you know, we, we do tend to fetishize things that are old, right? Right. Um, in, in very bizarre ways. I mean, you know, the U.S. Constitution is a great example, right? It's like, you know, the founders put that. 
that was 200 and some years ago. I mean, they didn't allow, they didn't even allow white women to vote yeah, right? or poor white men to vote. I mean, we're really making the argument that these people knew everything, yeah. right? But it's the document. It's this, this right. very strong desire to, I don't know, to attach to a past that is in some ways idealized, but where yeah. the understanding of things was you know, simple and we could rationalize that those people had an extremely insightful, almost sort of divine or if not actually divine mm. uh, inspiration uh, in what they were doing. I guess I never considered that sort of a semi or pseudo divine standpoint when you look at something like the Constitution. Yeah, well, think about yeah. the way that people talk about people like Jefferson or right. Washington. I've been in plenty of arguments with people where you mentioned the fact that these people were actually horrible human beings. And it's, it's like I just told you that your mom was like a hooker or something. Right. I mean, people are like, how dare you speak about like, yeah. you don't know Thomas Jefferson. He was a terrible human being. Yeah sort of going off that, I think it's so interesting that uh, we use uh, religion-like heuristics in our everyday lives all the sure, time. Sure, of course. And that secularization uh, does not mean losing spiritual practice. Right. Something interesting that, that I've seen um, is uh, the uptick in uh, witchcraft, the practice of witchcraft, especially in the United States, especially. I think I'd say it's mainly like 20-something white women, so my demographic. Right, um, sure. And also the uh, popularity of astrology is another big one, mm -hmm. also among, I'd say, mainly young white women. But that's been um, big even since I was a kid. I really? Mean, like, I have a big book at my house, and, you know, my mom wasn't a white woman. Um, she could have been, but she wasn't. Right? <laughs> um, but she has a, you know, a giant book of astrology that I used to read as a kid. So, you know, it's a thing. It's been around for a while, that one. I think it's interesting how spiritual beliefs or, or you know, non-formal religious practices can mm. intersect with politics. There's a, a strange but interesting subreddit, you know, reddit.com. I do indeed. Excellent. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen our witches versus patriarchy. <laughs> it's a weird it. kind. Sounds cool. It'll say things like, we're casting spells to get Trump out of office. We're also voting to get Trump out of office. It's, it's fascinating. I, I don't understand it, but I respect it. I think it's um, this attempt to assert power, I suppose. Sure. Of course, the importance of the Internet and all of this can't be overstated. Right. I mean, it certainly can't be. Because, again, I remember as a young person, younger person, hearing lots more young women in particular turning towards, you know, Wicca and that sort of thing. Um, I've heard there's a, you know, I think sometimes we sort of antagonize young women specifically for being into that stuff. Hmm. Um, I have read that especially uh, in terms of being into holistic wellness, which does have an intersection with things like witchcraft mm -hmm. uh, in a vague sense. Mm -hmm. um, it's because of some of the prejudice um, that women experience at the hands of the Western medical system and that it causes them to turn toward those sorts of things. That's maybe, one maybe. hypothesis. I've sure. Heard. I mean, I think it's, it's part it's for some people undoubtedly probably the main reason why. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would feel comfortable arguing probably not for everyone. Oh, certainly. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of a lot of young women, um, especially as they themselves encounter the contradictions of, of certain strains of Christianity in the United States that seek to limit what women can or should do. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, now that we're in an era where they aren't punished for saying something out loud, right, about it, that, yeah, it's maybe a natural way to gravitate towards a, a, a spiritual tradition that, in fact, empowers them as women um, versus one that pretty obviously, in many cases, de-emphasizes de their power, right? Right. And disempowers them in some, uh, some key ways. 
I have a friend who is Catholic, and um, and she sometimes is really bothered by people taking religions and sort of picking and choosing information yeah, sure. from them sure. uh, to sort of fit uh, their particular desires, and of course sometimes to escape what many of us would see as bigotry. Yeah. Here's the thing. I think people do that all the time with their traditions, right? Right. Um, I remember uh, when I was growing up, and and I like to read. So I was like, okay, if I'm going to be forced to go to church and I'll read the Bible. I was like, why on earth are we eating bacon? <laughs> yeah. Right. Or shrimp. Because, you know, it's pretty clearly says these things are things you're not meant to do. Right. right. Um, but of course, we pick and choose. We interpret differently. Oh, well, that actually applies to this group of people. That was yeah. the Old Testament. This is, you know, there are all of these ways in which we ultimately pick and choose from our traditions. Yeah, I and mean, that happens all the time when it comes to religion. And you know, certainly Christianity, even though it's the, it's, it's the one that's on the table now, it's mm -hmm. not the only tradition where that happens. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Um, you know, I think uh, many people would argue that that is a sort of natural process. Right. And that's what's important about religion is that it maintains some of the historical stuff along with, uh, you know, adapting to what's new. But the problem is that there's, it's hard to know where to draw the line. It's subjective, Precisely. et cetera, et cetera. You know where I'm going that's with right. that. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> it. Yeah. I mean, because that is the essential argument. It's like, yeah, on the one hand, it's a way to reconcile your modern reality with this ancient tradition that emerged mm -hmm. for very specific reasons yeah. that you are not privy to and that you don't exist in. I mean, what does one do with that, right? But at the same time, it, it provides that comfort of knowing that you're part of this, at least in your mind, this sort of unending, eternal tradition. Right. Um, and for many people, they, you know, they find that to be a very powerful source of comfort. Yeah. Um, you know, even as a secular person feeling part of an undying eternal like lineage of living beings is really powerful sure but, sure i mean it's I'm the same saying? for me right, right. i mean I've, i'm certainly an atheist and and especially as an adult you know once i sort of finally exorcised the rest of that stuff from me <laughs> it was interesting religious term to use oh yeah i mean I think, I think it's totally appropriate <laughs> yeah. right it's like it's it's like these you know these ghosts that keep popping up in your mind and you're like actually you know what no because the more powerful thing for me i mean i think about uh, and this, and of course, Thompson you know, talks about this a little bit in the article. Part of what religion is doing is it's, it's helping you to adjust to the fact that you live in an indifferent universe, mm. right? But for me, the most powerful thing, the most awe-inspiring thing was realizing that I live in a largely indifferent universe, and yet I live. Like, this is, <laughs> huh. it's extraordinary to me, right? Right. My goodness, what else would you want, right? I mean, it's, it's yeah, like exactly. the most far out religion, except it's real. So Thompson is talking about how uh, non-religious is a specific American identity, mm -hmm. and he says that it's one that, quote, distinguishes secular liberal whites from the conservative evangelical right. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, my question is, where does this leave non-religious Americans who don't fit that label? I certainly recognize and accept the importance of generalization and you know, looking at large numbers rather than you know, small folks. But I do think, I think it's valid to make that statement because that's where we've seen most of the movement. But I think it will become increasingly problematic hmm. um, over the next 20, 30 years as you see more um, non-white individuals in the United States uh, declare themselves to be non-religious of a variety of stripes, whether it's agnostic, atheist, or 
uh, sort of alternative spirituality, right? Right, and one would hope that the generalization would keep up with that if people are paying right. attention to the right. world. Yeah, right. But there's, but it's not, it's not inevitable that it will, because we live in a in a country where you know race and thinking about race and issues around race are paramount in how we do things and think things, even if we don't consciously think it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a whole other topic, but yeah, the. Ooh. I think I was going to jump from there into the relationship between faith and the liberation of historically oppressed groups. Yeah, I mean, so today, of course, um, you know, many people know about liberation theology, this tradition that emerged uh, particularly out of Catholicism and was embraced by many uh, sort of more marginalized or even outright uh, overtly oppressed communities of people from across uh, around the world. Do you think you could describe it a little bit? I'm not... I mean, I'm not... You know, ha- yeah. it's, it's, it's the idea of reading in um, in the words of Jesus and in many of the other, uh, you know, pieces of the Bible, a theology that seeks not only to, you know, validate your existence, but to to uplift it and to, you know, sort of deny that you should be held in some lower state or some lower position. The freedom of your group and, and its struggle for recognition and for equality and for equity, that this isn't incompatible with Christian doctrine, that in fact it is sort of central to it, right? Uh, That seems hard to spin. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, but you know, again, it's about the picking and choosing that we do, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, You know, you're having the same book, right? Both instructions to slaves for, for, you know, to, to obey their masters, and in the same book, instructions about, you know, why you should not allow people to do certain things to other people, right? You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? So would you like to be enslaved? (laughs) Right? And you have these sorts of, you have these sorts of contradictions, of course, not to mention the entire struggle uh, of, you know, for example, in the Christian Bible, right, of the Hebrews against their own sort of uh, enslavement, right? Mm. I mean, there's very much a liberation doctrine to be seen in them deciding, okay, we're getting out of Egypt, we're getting out of these places, right? For me, where it's more personal is around the role that faith has played, of course, in the U.S. context, and and specifically uh, American forms of Christianity. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, I think religious faith has been extremely important, uh, especially the deeper in the past that we go, in helping extremely marginalized individuals, particularly uh, those of African descent, helping them to to survive the horror, the true horror of of American slavery, Um, not to mention everything that came after after that. On the one hand, I have no interest in, in denigrating what people needed in order to help them survive what is literally uh, one of the worst crimes against humanity in known human history. At the same time, um, I think that for me, it was difficult to reconcile this belief anymore because it was, you know, again, it's part and parcel of the same belief system that the slave masters and those who agreed with the slave masters maintained. Well, for the, I mean, for those who are actually using it for liberation, um, I don't have a whole lot of anger around that. I think most of my anger, um, especially from growing up, came around people, um, whether it be people inside my community or outside of it, who used it to justify the position of of marginalization. Hmm. 
And that's always been my issue, right? As much as one can, of course, read liberation in, into some of what is written in this text, one can just as easily read subjugation. You know, part of, part of what is difficult for me, you know, I think where I would have been less angry is, is, is if they were following sort of, you know, Coptic Christian or Ethiopian Christian, other sort of, you know, African earlier versions of Christianity, right, from the African continent or from other parts of the world where, you know, it wasn't so fatally compromised by, by this horrific American experience. <laughs> I think I'd be a lot more open to that, right? But that's the nature of religious faith, right, is that it allows people to see certain things and to ignore other things, right? And sometimes that's necessary because right? right. you can't walk around angry all the time. Yeah, I think you can't walk around disempowered all the time, right? Sometimes necessary even when you're non-religious. Right, like exactly. Blocks, exactly. I don't want to say block certain things out, but sometimes that's what we do. No, I mean, people yeah. do it all the time, yep. literally all the time, right? It's like, dude, you can't clearly see that this person is fooling around on you? You can't see that? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, um, I'm blind. I do not see. Right. I don't, like a because people don't see things because we don't want to see them. Right? Yeah. Um, but it's, it's one of those things, right, where for me, once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. Mm-hmm. And, and that was part of what helped to unravel it for me. Some of the words that were attributed to Jesus are some of the things I find most, like literally some of the most profound ways of living that one can imagine, right? The idea of not being judgmental towards Mm -hmm. others, to treat others as you would yourself. I mean, these are beautiful statements of our common humanity and what we should be striving towards. And, you know, it's all of the stuff that's around that that is really, really deeply problematic. And and so I have no time for hypocrisy either, right? Yeah. Hi there. Unfortunately, we've lost our last few minutes of footage, so we have to stop here. But that was Health and Society Professor Ron Watson with myself, Rosie Pasqualini, on the Atlantic article, Three Decades Ago, America Lost Its Religion. Why? Written by Derek Thompson for The Atlantic and published in September, not May, of 2019. This episode of Canton Read was directed by Jonathan Kelly and filmed at the Beloit TV studio. Views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the views of Beloit College. Make sure you check out the description for show notes, and thank you so much for watching. Bye-bye.